Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global community. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and I'm here as normal with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be here, and I believe you have a guest today. We certainly do. A special guest today, and I'm going to let you introduce Coco in a few moments. And But in the meantime, I just want to remind everybody, for those that are enjoying these, Please subscribe and and share by all means because we love we're basically just here to communicate with the community and to bring community in like we're doing today with Coco Key to learn about different parts of what's happening in this extraordinarily burgeoning space. Now everyone will know, unless you've been living under a rock, that the marketplace in actual fact has boomed. And we've seen the CCI thirty go from nine thousand six hundred and thirty five you know, which it is today rather, and its all-time high has been at 32,615, a long way to go to the all-time high. But the point is, it's been up 64% year to date, and it's up 11% alone this month. It's coming alive again. It's extraordinary that it's coming alive. But what's interesting is our perception as human beings is that we've viewed price as value. And the reality is the entire time that the price has been low over the last 18 months to two years, this, this industry has been booming ahead. And the likes of Coco Key and ourselves have been active in this industry, seeing it move. Now, hey, Nitin, over to you because let's, let's meet Coco, our guest. Sure. No, no. I think uh, today's special, the, the episode itself is very special. We have Coco Key as our guest today. And I am excited, Derek, because we're very fortunate to have this discussion with Coco, and it's an opportune moment, and I'll discuss in a minute why. I've known Coco for a few years now, and Coco and our partner, Kevin, we would meet at events, and we would the time would fly because we would have so much fun and so much to share and learn from each other, our experiences, truly global experiences, uh, between Coco, Kevin, and myself. We would just, you know, we would have hours to talk about how the industry is evolving. So Coco, as, as I've known her, it's, it's, she's a co-founder and managing partner of KGA, which I believe is key global advisory. Coco has entrenched herself in fintech, um, spent a lot of time on trading platforms and technologies. Of course, naturally, progression towards blockchain. Fintech includes payments, payment infrastructure, which is my interest too. And then eventually crypto and digital assets. And she is an educator, as we have seen her on the, on the conference circuits. She's a bilingual author, which is great uh, in today's context, and has many contributions to blockchain and crypto content. Uh, she creates content. She is, uh, I read her sort of, you know, her newsletters on a regular basis, very informative. And I request my audience to spend some time in figuring that out and subscribe to it. So Coco, welcome to Beyond Bitcoin. And tell us a bit more about yourself, because I don't think I did justice in introducing you mm-hmm. with your richer career and background. And tell us, tell, tell us and, your, on, and our audience on your journey and story of crypto and digital assets. Thank you. Great to meet you, Derek, and thank you, Nidin. Good to see you again. So you did a great job introducing my background, but to be to be exact, I I found I co-founded KGA together with Kevin. Uh, but before that, Kevin and I we came from a fintech background. In two thousand around two thousand sixteen. 17, we went to a lot of meetups in New York and we came across crypto and blockchain and both of us fell down the rabbit hole. So we dropped everything else we did and we decided this is it. So we went all in 
And since then, we have been in this industry, and we we still very excited about it. We enjoy every moment. Cool. So, and the reason I'm saying about the bilingual part of it, you know, Coco, because bridging the divide. This week is an interesting week, right? And let's start from the bigger macro element before we go deeper deeper into the crypto and Asian context. This week is the beginning of the APEC, which is the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference in San Francisco, where the leaders of the two biggest economies, President Xi and President Biden, meet. And it's a long-awaited you know meeting which has been delayed several times and it's going to happen apparently this week in San Francisco so we've we've seen a lot of news around the cleanups in San Francisco and so on and so forth yes. any thoughts any thoughts on focus areas and any divide that needs to be bridged i'm sure there are many differences culturally as well as in in recent sort of political uh, past uh, a few critical ones will help so i'd love to get your thoughts at a, at the macro level since i see you as a bridge between the two biggest economies north america and and the asian ecosystem starting with china sure so i originally was from china and so the i've always been watching the the development between us china the relationship because these are the two main powers in the world so if they work together the world will be much better but in the past few years the tension between the two country has been uh, going up and there are a lot of issues especially during starting from Trump administration and then when Biden took over uh, there were more friction uh, between the two countries including trade including um geopolitical uh, tensions for example and in South China Sea there are there's more and more confrontation and also when it comes to taiwan that's something that both country china and us have been talking about especially china is not is is not very happy with the stance of the us when it comes to taiwan issue so there are things are not growing to the you know a pleasant status a lot of people are very concerned uh, especially also recently between uh, during the uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine China took the side with Russia and that may upset a lot of western countries including the US so that leads to the the threat or the risk of decoupling between the two countries so more and more people feel that these two countries are are growing apart versus growing together so this 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 time when she comes to san francisco a couple of things i pay attention to one is how these how the two leaders would talk about how to resolve the the situation between Russia and Ukraine what kind of role China wants to play and also when it comes to the war between Israel and and the Palestinian so what China's attitude and stand will be and China of course will ask the US about US attitude towards Taiwan and South China Sea crisis so these are the very tough questions that they have to 
lay out and put on the table to go through. And only by solving all these conflicts or disagreement can they sit down and talk about what else they can build together, what kind of yeah. partnership these two countries can build. Yeah. So, so I follow on to that, you know, Coco, and I think this is certainly pertinent and I'm glad you have stated things as they are without sugarcoating them, which I think is great. In terms of trade, because at some point, even on this show, Derek and me have opined on the role of global macro. And we talked about how stable coins bring in liquidity into the crypto ecosystems and pull liquidity out based on liquidity tightening. And all that is tied into, in many cases, you know, the trade, the trade talks between U.S. and China as two largest economies, impact of that on over, you know, global economic systems, the banking systems that that affect and impact from trade, the common men who get impacted from the trade because suddenly now we have more jobs and more more opportunities that, that emanate from it. From this APEC event, I and I'm following that too just to understand from trade perspective uh, primarily, but how do you see in the realm of crypto and Asian context, right? I'm sure as a part of the KGA, the the key global advisory, and you're an ambassador in sorts of communicating between the investment to the investment communities, you know, on technology, on regulatory and business peculiarities between North America and Asia. And I, I, I think you have a you, you should have an interesting perspective on that as the trade talks evolve and we resolve some of the disputes, whether it's intellectual property or whether it's balance of payments or whether it's it's anti dumping sort of you know rhetoric or anti competitive elements. Whatever they, you know, they may be, I'd love to get your perspectives. How do you navigate that as you communicate to your clients, both in North America and in Asia? I would say that um, this trip, Xi and, and Biden, their talk and their conversation would have less impact on the crypto or blockchain uh, technology itself, just indirect impact. The direct, very less, a uh, little direct impact will come out of this summit. But indirectly, I would say that U.S. China might have a better. I would not. I would not tie too much of this APEC with the crypto and blockchain industry. Mm. It's it's interesting that we as Westerners interpret certain languages one way and of course the Chinese interpret it quite differently and and as Nitin knows my partner Grace is Singaporean speaks Mandarin and Cantonese fluently and has studied international politics and when recently our Prime Minister Prime Minister Albanese visited China and met with Xi Jinping the the press and media referred to him as the handsome boy and Grace immediately <laughs> knew that this was not a compliment. Yet the entire press and media in Australia thought it was a wonderful compliment on the way through. And so sometimes these, these lost in translations that, that we've, we've read about in, in some of Michael Gladwell's books or, you know, are, are problematic for this space. And in Australia, we've faced the same challenges in the fact that we're a primary producer, so China sort of has to buy from us in some cases, like we've got the best coal in the world that they require, the highest standards and other things. So 
so recently they've started winding back some of their restrictions because they just need the coal and they need the natural resources. And, and I think what we're seeing there is really sort of conditional international transactions that are occurring with a, with a nation that's very strong. And in Australia's case, you know, not quite as strong in these areas. Meanwhile, they also have this extraordinary opportunity, and they're taking it, to re-establish a new currency around BRICS. And their CBDC, their wholesale CBDC that the BIS and BRICS nations are working with, and of course BRICS nations are, are soon expanding, we're, we're likely to see them expand into nations in the Middle East and in South America. And so, so this wholesale CBDC is coming on. I've read numerous times that there's over um, a thousand um, CB developers of the, you know, the, the blockchain, wholesale blockchain in, in, in China alone. So what do you think you're going to see when, when a wholesale CBDC comes into place, Asia gets the extra confidence of not having to deal with um, just US dom uh, domiciled uh, currency, uh, and more and more people uh, in Asia are starting to transact on a new digital currency. Admittedly, that's wholesale, but wholesale will bring retail um, currency trading in in due course. What are your thoughts about you know, Asia's likelihood of adoption much faster maybe than that of Europe and uh, the US? Yes, China has been very active or has devoted a lot of time developing CBDC. In the beginning, they focused on retail, and I haven't seen much tra uh, traction in China. They try; they still are trying and pushing it within China. But what is going on in globally when it comes to, for example, different wars, geo uh, geopolitical tension and friction, is pushing China to try push harder on wholesale CBDC and they would use that to just in case one day China has to face the, the sanction of, from the US. Yes. And so yes. they have been working hard to push that and they encourage banks to use that and they push it to to partner with different countries. For example, China and Thailand also has this uh, CBDC cross-border payment projects. They, they are working with, I think Hong Kong is working also with, with Thailand on that front. So what is going on geopolitical, you know, the geopolitical tension has been pushing China really hard to, in towards the direction of the wholesale CBDC, and I'll see they will not slow down. They they will just speed up. Mm -hmm. And look, you know, what do you see in this general realm of you know the Asian context, how it's moving forward? You working with KGA are in some sorts an ambassador, and 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 communicate, I think, both cultural differences and technology uh, opportunities between the US and what's happening in, in Asia. It's, it's a, I think it's a really important role, as I just meant, mentioned with the handsome boy statement. What is said and what is meant are two different things very often. <laughs> but you and I met in Singapore for the first time, uh, and we were at the token 2049, and I got a sense that Asia 
has chosen not to concern itself with the noise of the SEC and, and the US regulations and move forward and do considerable development in its own right. Do you think it's operating uh, rapidly and with the enthusiasm, pre the price increase, with the enthusiasm that, that the US once had in 2017 when uh, we both joined the space? So I try to get your understand your question. You mean for for Asian companies, are they still enthusiastic about U.S. market? Is that what your question? Oh, so sorry, are they are they are they? Do you think they're working with more vigor, with more support, context, government support, investment support, etc., uh, than what we're seeing in the U.S. at the moment? Do you think Asia's moving ahead at a faster rate now in this space of blockchain and surrounding Web three technologies? The answer is definitely yes. It's definitely yes. So look at Hong Kong. If, if we just pick some country, countries and regions like Hong Kong, Singapore, and UAE, just name a few, they are all moving and pushing hard, including Australia. You are, you're rolling out a consulting paper, consultation paper to the industry. So for sure, compared with the US, they are definitely they taking a more positive attitude toward this industry. It is such a big contrast because about three or four years ago, when China was, was cracking down on the crypto and mining, a lot of companies in China and Asia said, so we are all looking up to the US. You, you guys give us hope. But suddenly the whole situation turned, the, the trend reversed. And now US companies are, are going to Asia to look for the hope that, that US, US used to give to the world. So US, uh, Asia definitely is, is much more ahead um, of, of the U.S. in many ways, especially when it comes to regulation. Yeah, so, so uh, before I ask my question, can you give me the context of this handsome boy? Is that something like a pretty boy? You know how we say pretty boy in, in, in the U.S.? Is it the same context? <laughs> or a white boy, or now. a local boy, or a homeboy? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the context, Derek, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty boy is like, you know, is that... What is implication? Even I don't understand that. Yeah, yes, I would love context? to learn more. So a bit more so when you think someone boy. is a handsome boy, what does so it So, handsome like? boy, so once he visited China and he had met with Xi Jinping, the local press and media referred to him as a handsome boy. Now, I'm sorry, sorry, Mr. Albanese, you're not that handsome. And and so therefore, <laughs> this is not about, it's, it's not as if we're talking about the, the, the I think the, the Prime Minister of, of France, who's somewhat handsome, I'd have to say, I even I could tell that. Okay. So no, this, this, is a, this is a term, you know, that Grace believes is essentially a gentle ridicule, saying that, you know, he's not that special, he's probably a lightweight. And, oh, okay. and, and, and that is the context of it. And, and they're lost in translation, which is that, that you know, fabulous position yeah. that we're in, yeah. which is why your role, Coco, between the US and Asia, how you interpret what's happening in Asia is so terribly important for we in, in Australia and in the US, because I acknowledge that, that what is said uh, is not necessarily what is meant. Uh, it, it's a very important role that you play there. So, so what I did notice is that, of course, we're seeing not just Dubai, but now Abu Dhabi and other places 
really move ahead in the Middle East. Dubai has spent, according to their releases, a billion dollars of hard currency US every year since 2017-18 on building infrastructure and building opportunity to entice groups to come to, to the Middle East. Even we as a fund are looking at Dubai and going, what might we do in the Middle East? Might we establish something there in, in Dubai rather? And, and I must say that, that the Asian opportunity is, is one that I think America is now focusing on. Where do you think the real opportunities exist, the ones that are so obvious at the moment in Asia? Is it geographically, of course, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong or other Asian surrounding nations? Or, and, and also, where do you think the biggest technology movement is? Do you think it's in layer one protocols or is it really developing apps and gaming at the moment? Before I answer this question, I want to talk a little bit about culture because when you mentioned yeah. cultural gap, it is very interesting that when I got into blockchain crypto digital, very few companies or founders talk about this. They barely ask what, how to interpret this or how to interpret that because it is such, um, everybody thought that it was decentralized uh, industry and we don't need to care about what regulators think, what they say. So I haven't come across many people who ask me how to interpret this, what do you think they really mean? Mm. Most of the time, they all just say, I want to go after this business opportunity, um, or I want to raise money, or we need money, or we need to take our company to that market. Very few people ask me about the cultural yeah. differences. So I, I want to get back to that. And then the second question, uh, my answer to the second question is, Asia actually is such a big market. When you say Asia, we really have to cut yeah. them into different pieces. Uh, for Asia still, from what I learned, is more heavy on applications and also gaming versus the US much heavier on they call core technology or protocols. So protocol development, layer one, layer two development, but Asian companies more on applications. And DeFi nowadays, I, I do see DeFi is, is, is picking up in Asia. Yeah, so, so let me, that's a great point, Goku. And I, I think I've always said that finance is all about context and culture. Finance, even though you have the basic financial primitives like borrowing and lending and collateralization that, is, that underpins the industry in general. And of course, technology itself is agnostic. So while blockchain technology is the underpinning technology beneath the crypto and digital assets, you still have the foundational elements of these financial primitives. There is a context. And love for you to, since you are again looking at both sides of the landscape, the East and the West, and can you share your experiences in, in, in the context you deal with in, in the sense that are the expectation of Asian investors similar from the industry than it is of the Western investors? Because my context has been largely with Western investors. Of course, Derek, you have got a great mix from when we've had this conversation with different investment community to say, are you looking at this as 
a alpha generating uh, sort of asset class. I have always labeled this as a fifth asset class, which is adding diversity, getting exposure, which has been the Western sort of element. Love to get your thoughts on that because this context is important because it's all embedded into cultural aspect of how investment happens, how in how people invest or how people see the industries that they want to invest into, if that makes sense. What I deal with mostly are VC investors, not asset investors. So I'm talking about the venture capital investment. Um, what I came across, most of the Asian uh, VC investors, they, they prefer, they look to US and other Western countries for protocol, uh, layer one, layer two. That is about, you know, since for many years. Until recently, they start to pull back from the U.S. and focus on Asia and to identify opportunities in Asia, especially now they, they put more money into applications. Uh, that is my observation. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, and even for like VC too, right? I think uh, to me it's, it's, the, it's the synergy between the venture investing and the asset sort of management, in, in, you know, which is the direct investing communities because there is a euphoria on a specific industry and as we have seen in the era of 2020 and 2022 where there's massive amounts of liquidity flowing into all kinds of projects and that suddenly dried up you'd find that same level of energy in the direct investing into into crypto as an asset class and and post the the quantitative tightening which is the tightening of liquidity and the, the money supply in the system, which is what the feds have been going through, we saw the liquidity dry up and suddenly we saw the you know, liquidity dry up from the traditional finance, but also from the crypto finance per se. So that's, that's interesting. Derek, I'd love to get your thoughts as well. In Australia, yeah. in your recent trips, have you seen similar sort of trends or sometimes do you see VC as a higher, higher sort of deeper investments coming from VC as opposed to from, from the family offices and, and wealth managers into the space. It's interesting. VC has commenced, I think, ahead of this recent trend, and it has reawoken ahead of the recent trend. I spend more time in Singapore these days than I do in Sydney. And, and so, therefore, I can only quote on what I'm, I'm hearing there, but I am seeing solid interest. Uh, a very well-connected friend of mine, was saying that he attended a, a family office luncheon whilst up at Token 2049. Some of the biggest family offices were there. In that day, around that table, in that afternoon, there was over $400 million, you know, slated towards venture capital wow. project. It's, it's a huge amount, isn't it? In, in Asia and in the US. So, so it's not just specific to, to Asia. And what I think we're seeing is we're seeing the VC aspect the VC investors re-entering this space early before this reignited, you know, the beginning of what we perceive to be the bull run that's, that we've watched over the last six weeks. They were here back in August, September from my observations, and they were starting to allocate money to VC or look towards VC investment. And not probably a bad idea because you might remember at the boom of the VC period, when this space was booming in late 2021, the price earnings ratios, not that they are price earnings ratios, but certainly the amounts of, of uh, the percentage of investments, the cost of investing into these early stage programs was very, very high. 
And after two years of, of crypto winter, that cost obviously is reduced. VCs are entering this space at a, yeah. at a lot lower rate than they were before. So I also got the sense that there's more VC activity in Asia than there is in Australia. And, and there's a lot of optimism there. Do you get that sense, Coco? I do. I still see invest VC funds invest in different deals, both in Asia and in the US. And one observation I have is more Asian investors, they are starting to be more global compared with US investors. US investors more just US centric and yeah. it's only a few, very few of them are able to look out to Asia and other markets and, and understand uh, the opportunities there. But because these Asian investors, they started out very early on to look for deals in US, in Europe, because in the beginning, US and, and other markets have better opportunities for them. Yeah. So their understanding of US as well as now their local markets are way ahead of U.S. investors. I do see, and some of the funds also start launching liquid fund in, in addition to the, the equity fund. And so they want to move into investing in those tokens as, as a part of the, the almost like asset management, as well as, of course, they also launch some OTC services to com uh, combine with the VC investment. So I see the optimistic, you know, the environment in Asia, much, much more optimistic yeah. than, than the US. Well, that makes sense because in all my travels too, Derek, and I used to travel to Asia, as you know, Coco, almost every month, twice a month to Singapore and Shanghai and, and the energy that I found, Coco, in Asia specifically was what I compared to, and I'm dating myself now, compared to the dot-com era in the U.S. There was appetite, there was openness, there was ability for them to take risks, and there was money flowing into it, whereas in the U.S., this industry was laden with skepticism, largely because of the regulatory environment, to say, is this a regulatory risk, regardless of what you know, where the innovation is heading? So I find that, at least from my observation, a distinct difference. And as you rightly pointed out, Coco, that, that it is that energy to me that you describe and the euphoric sort of element that the community comes together with energy and money and time and talent, which creates, you know, what we have seen post-dot-com era for the last three decades. I think I see that, that energy shift in the Asian subcontinent that includes Southeast Asia as well as the greater China group as, 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 as we have classified this globally, I think. So I have one last question to ask. Go ahead, sorry, Derek. So Nitin, please ask the last question, but also you're traveling again to Singapore to attend a conference at the end of this month. I'm meeting you also there. So we'll be doing our first broadcast together for, for That's right. actually the first for one. And, and, and I want you to tell us what that conference is. You're doing a keynote speech, speech at the conference, etc. Over to you on those two questions too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'll have a last question for you, Kiki. The, the last word, sorry, Coco. The, the, the last word has to come from you in terms of your observation and what you, how you see the industry unfold. But I'll be at the event towards the end of the month, which is after Thanksgiving in the U.S. 
in a event which is hosted by Parallel Chain, which is up and coming layer one chain, and it's uh, International Society for for Blockchain Association. This is basically an academic event where you bring in the scientists and the computer scientists and the business people to talk about the industry and how the industry is evolving, how technology is, how the newer technology, both in terms of hardware innovations, software innovations, cryptography is changing the landscape per se. So it's it's going to be a, a good mix of business and tech people coming together. It's a two-day event. It's oftentimes hosted in a hotel for one day and the day before we meet the college uh, academia, which is professors and scientists in NUS, which is National University of Singapore, which is again a preeminent sort of educational institution in Singapore. So looking forward to it, Derek, and I'm hoping that we are able to be productive, not only in terms of sharing what we know, but also learn from that ecosystem as we as we engage with various participants there. But the yeah. question for you, go ahead, Derek, sorry. You're always a contributor, and so, so, and you're always doing educational work, which Coco knows too, constantly. And so one of the things you're also doing is you're, you're going to be meeting with a, a group called Financial Alliance. So there's a whole yeah. lot of people there that you're doing a dinner function to, a great opportunity for them to speak firsthand with yeah. someone that knows a great deal about the industry such as you. And then in a very different space, we're doing a family office gathering, which is basically a speakeasy environment around a round table with about 12 or 15 family offices. So they can just ask firsthand uh, questions that, that, that are going to interest them within this space. Uh, it's an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, so I might say for those family offices in Singapore that are listening to this, et cetera, if you want to attend that, please reach out to us. But it's just a great opportunity to be in the room and have Nitin speak directly to their interests, concerns, et cetera, in a space. And I just wish we could replicate you by a thousand Nitin so that we could send you all around the world. 980 of you could stay in America because I think they need more help there. And the other <laughs> two and and coco you're of course invited it'd be great to have uh, coco in a, in a, as a fire chat that is as well uh, especially yeah. with the cultural sort of element that you described coco but coco the, the just, last no, question I'm sorry, which I, I just recover to... i just recover from the jet lag you know of my trip to singapore so it took me over oh, a come month come on uh, oh, coco you're no. Asian like me you're you're no. supposed to be all constant on the move back and forth <laughs> between the asian ecosystem and and i i i, I like you i traveled for quite a bit and i think every asian should not worry about jet lag because we are supposed to go back and forth with our home country and the country that we, I live, should. That we live I in. I should do more. I know. You should do more, yeah. And so, love to get your perspective on prediction for the future, say, five years. What do you, you know, where do you see the industry in five years? And this is global. Like, from your vantage point, as you see the industry unfold, investor, you're in the forefront of the VC investment going into the, where do you see the industry heading and what's your prediction if, 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 you, if you could make one? Five years, it's a, it's, it's a long, Eternity. long time, yeah. especially for crypto. Maybe they yeah. just do one or two years, right? Okay, let's do two years. Up into the hundred years for a traditional industry. Uh, in a year or two, I would say some of the markets in Asia would be very exciting, especially I'm optimistic about Hong Kong market. Although most people, uh, they, they, they are very cautious about Hong Kong. I do think Hong Kong will become something that, you know, very exciting, uh, given its proximity to mainland China, and also its 
long history of crypto trading. So that could be a market. If it, they do well, it will pull the, the bear market out and drag us into the, the bull market. Ooh. Yes. Fantastic. It is indeed. So thank you very much, Coco. Uh, look forward to catching up with you again. And I think for our audience, let's, let's catch up again within the next year. Because yeah. as you say, Asia's moving so quickly to have your cultural interpretation of what's happening in Asia and the opportunity of Asia, I think it's very important for our audience. Greatly appreciate having you on indeed. Look forward to seeing you again. And for the rest of our audience, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, Nitin. And we will see you next week. And then next the week, week after right. that, we will see you from Singapore. That's right. Bye for now, okay. everyone. Very good Thank to connect with you again. Me. Thank you for coming Thank here you. and sharing your perspectives. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.